Right, good morning, everybody. I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'm preaching this morning, so I cannot go long. So we're going to move on to Lesson 9, our second to last lesson in this MIT class, our penultimate lecture. It's been a long journey. We feel like Christians, some of us. We are wearied in our pilgrimage towards the end. Maybe not. I hope not. Last week, if you will recall, we met Christian at the Delectable Mountains, which is such a wonderful name, which, as we said, the Delectable Mountains represent an image of the church from the vantage point of a mature believer. The mature believer sees the church as delectable, as Mountains And on the mountains, there were shepherds, just like in the church. There are pastors, and these pastors were named knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. And as we studied the scripture, we saw that those are four very good descriptors of what a pastor, what a shepherd ought to be. These shepherds then led Christian and Hopeful around to see several mountains. They were like sermons in mountain form. These sermons had different names. One was called the Hill Error, which is a warning against error, which we read all throughout the New Testament epistles. Watch out. Be careful. Be on guard. The other was Mount Caution. We also saw that there was a door on the side of the mountain. And they opened the door and Christian peered in and he saw nothing but darkness. And he smelled brimstone, sulfur. This was a reminder of the danger of hell, the warning that Christians are to heed. But they didn't just stop there. They weren't merely preachers of hellfire and brimstone. They led them also to Mount Clear. And it is from Mount Clear that Christians are given a glimpse of the celestial city from the vantage point of the top of Mount Clear. He can see the destination. And it says that Christian and Hopeful are given a looking glass. Think of a telescope or a set of binoculars, perhaps. And from the vantage point of Mount Clear, they can see the celestial city. But but the text says that they're not able to hold steady the glass. Their their vision of the heavenly city is, is a little shaky. It's a reminder of remaining sin and of the conviction of past sins that impede their view. There's something within them that prevents them from getting a perfect glimpse of the celestial city. Similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. But they are rewarded with a glimpse of the glory of the celestial city. Today we're going to move on. Bunyan pictures our two pilgrims, Christian and Hopeful, walking down the mountains on the highway towards the celestial city. They are resuming their journey, and they encounter a man named Ignorance. Ignorance. And I'm going to read a bit about Ignorance. Christian then asked Ignorance... From what parts he came and whither he's going. Where are you from? Where are you headed? Ignorance says, Sir, I was born in the country that lies just off over there, a little to the left. 
and I'm headed to the celestial city. Christian said, but how did you think to get in at the gate? Some people find difficulty there. How did you get on this path? Ignorance says, well, as other good people do, so did I. He said, but what, what have you to show at the gate that the gate should be open to you? He said, how, how are you going to get into the celestial city? He said, I know the Lord's will and I have, I have been a good liver. I've lived a good life. I pay every man what is his own. I pray, I fast, I pay tithes, I give alms to the poor. I've even left my country. That's where I'm headed. Christian said, but, but you came not to the way through the wicked gate. That's at the, at the beginning of this journey. You came through another crooked lane. And therefore I fear that however you think of yourself, when the day of reckoning shall come, you... you you will have laid to thy charge, and, and you're simply a thief and a robber, and, and instead you will not get admittance to the city. And so here we have ignorance, which the text reveals to us as a false professor, and he's not the only one we've met so far. We've met, if you remember, simple and sloth and presumption who were asleep near the cross. We met formalist and hypocrisy who climbed over the wall to get in the way. They didn't go through the wicked gate. We saw timorous and mistrust who were running backwards down the way. We met talkative who was so aptly named and he talked well about religion but failed to live out. There were others too. Ignorance himself is an energetic, lively fellow. He's a He's fun to listen to in one sense. He, see, he speaks a lot. But he comes from the country called Conceit. His name, as it suggests, tells us that he's unfamiliar with the Bible and with religion. But it's actually his country that exposes the true problem with his journey. Ignorance is not someone who's unconcerned with eternity, nor knows nothing of heaven and hell. He's, he's not someone who has never read the Bible or heard a sermon. But what ignorance represents is someone who is ignorant of the true gospel, that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christian has heard of the country of conceit. It's a land of vanity, pride, self-satisfaction, and he knows what James says. That God opposes the proud. And Christian suspects that ignorance may find some difficulty ending his journey well. He asks him, how do you, how do you know you're going to get in the gate? When you get there, how do you know you're going to be able to get in? And ignorance assumes that his efforts will make him acceptable. He says, all will be well. He'll enter as all the other good people do. And Christian presses him further saying, but boy, what evidence do you have? He says, I know the Lord's will. Right? He's, he's read the Bible. Maybe he's read it many times. He says, I've been a good liver. He's, li he's lived a good life. I'm a good guy. I haven't murdered anybody. I deal honestly with people. I faithfully attend church. I pray. I fast. I give money to the poor. And I've left his old country. He's turned his back on the world. And he's pushing forward, trying to get the reward of heaven. And at first, all of that sounds very commendable. 
here in the South, in the Bible Belt? Perhaps it sounds very familiar. It's good to know God's will. It's good to be honest and to pray. It's good to seek the reward of heaven. Where talkative that we met earlier failed to live out his profession, ignorance tries hard to excel in good deeds. But Christian recognizes the fatal deficiency in ignorance's testimony. Ignorance is resting in confidence on himself, his own good works. He truly believes that he is a good person. After all, he's tried to live a good life. He goes to church, he knows what the Bible says, he knows the the liturgy, he sings the hymns, he wants to go to heaven. Hell is for bad people, ignorance would say, and I am not one of those bad people. So of course he will get in the gate. His pride and his confidence, his heritage being from the country of conceit, blind him to his true need for grace and mercy. He's resting in a false hope because we know what Paul says in Galatians 2, that the works of the law shall justify no one. In God's assessment, ignorance is not a good person. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Ignorance is deceived. So Christian fears for ignorance's soul and he speaks plainly to him. He warns him that he did not come in through the wicked gate. That's Christ. But he entered through the crooked lane, the lane of his own works. And on the day of judgment, he will to be found like a thief and a robber who will not gain entrance to the city. This is uh, Jesus' language in John 10. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, the same is a thief and a robber. Instead... Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one will enter the celestial city without coming to Christ and receiving the grace and mercy that can only be found in Him. Ignorance now is offended that Christian would judge him so harshly. He knows none in his country who would venture so far as to come like this. The crooked lane is closer. It's much more pleasant. It's much more convenient from my country of conceit. Why would I go all the way around to the wicked gate? He tells Christian what is a remarkably relevant and modern response. He says, you practice your religion, I'll practice mine. You go your own way. Ignorance discounts the gospel. He imagines he can make it through his own righteousness. Though he's walking in the way to the celestial city, his self-conceit identifies him as a fool, biblically. Ecclesiastes 10.3, Even a fool, when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. He claims to have left his country of conceit, but true to his native land, he is indeed conceited. Confident in the path he's taken, satisfied in himself. William Mason, an old commentary, uh, commenter on this text, 
concludes by saying, So long as a sinner thinks he can do anything towards making himself righteous before God, his name is ignorance. He's full of self-conceit, destitute of true faith in Christ. He is wise in his own eyes. And as Proverbs says, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Christian concludes that there's, there's no point in continuing this conversation. Error, especially when it's deep-seated and blinding, makes it nearly impossible to root it out all at once. It takes patience and discernment to know when to speak and how much to say and when to stop. And so he wants to give ignorance time to think about what he's heard. He suggests that he and Hopeful go on and perhaps meet up with ignorance at a later time to see if he can be helped. He's saying, I've planted some seeds. We'll see again if we can meet and if there's any growth. We'll talk to you anon, he says, shortly, soon. Even if you're able to bear it. So moving on, no sooner than have they outpaced ignorance, they pass by another false professor. The text says that they enter a very dark lane. And they see a man bound up in seven strong cords being carried in the opposite direction. So he's bound up, he can't move, it's dark, and he's being hauled off. Seven devils, the text says, have captured him and are taking him back to the byway to hell. Christian and Hopeful are trembling at the sight. The man in bondage is turn away. He has turned away. He's a man who is apostatizing. He's turning away from the faith. He's falling away from the faith. Once a professor, a, a, a follower, a professing follower of Christ, now he's turned away. He's grown careless. He trifles with sin to the point where it no longer disturbs him. These apostatizers grow comfortable with the world. They fail to fear God and are unaffected and unrestrained by His Word. They forsake Christ only to be soiled by and ensnared in their own sin. They who once profess faith in Christ turn away from God and His Word. Those that are in danger of apostasy. Hebrews warns of the fearful consequences of apostasy says in chapter 6 it's impossible for those who were once enlightened who have tasted of the heavenly gift who have become partakers of the holy spirit have tasted of the good word of god and the powers of the age to come if they fall away it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to open shame to fall away is to persist in sin and disobedience and rejection of the gospel. Now it's certainly possible for a Christian to fall into sin and even for that fall to be for a long time. But for those who are Christ, they will be rescued and restored. God will stir them up in faith and renew their repentance and welcome them back with abundant grace and mercy. But those who are truly apostate, who reject the gospel all the way to the end, cannot be renewed to repentance. They dishonor Christ by loving their sin more than Him. 
they would persist in seeing their sins as too great for Christ to conquer. Christian was warned of the dangers of apostasy earlier in this pilgrimage. Does anybody remember the previous image of apostasy? In the house of interpreter, when he was shown several pictures, he was taken to see a man locked in an iron cage. This man, the text says, was once a flourishing professor. Appeared to be a very fruitful Christian. He was on his way to the celestial city, but like Turnaway, the man in the iron cage abandoned God's word and pursued his lust. He fell headlong into sin and believed that he had so fallen that he was without hope. He sat in misery and in bondage in a very dark room, just like the dark lane that we see Turnaway being carried off in. Remember, we've, we've said darkness in this book represents the absence of the light of God's word and the resulting hopelessness that comes with that. When the eye looks for sin and the mind pursues sin, the light of Scripture begins to dim. Now, I've talked a pretty good bit about apostasy before, so we're going to continue to move on. Christian and hopeful Meet next other characters, one named Little Faith. Little Faith, as you would guess, struggles with doubt. Little Faith is attacked. He's mugged by three robbers named Faint Heart, Mistrust, and Guilt. These are thieves, villains who show up. The thieves threaten his life. And it says, the text says that little faith turns as white as a clout. C-L-O-U-T. Clout being an old piece of white cloth that was used by archers for target practice. We might say he turned as white as a sheet. The color drained from him. Faint heart, the first robber. It's uh, timidity, fearfulness demands that little faith surrender his purse, surrender his coin bag. He says, give me your wallet. Little faith is slow to respond. But he loses his courage and he offers little resistance. Just, just, just take it. Mistrust, the second robber, which is doubt, unbelief. Sees an opportunity, he rushes in to snatch a bag of silver from Little Faith's pocket. The thief represents the loss that Little Faith experiences when he gives in to sin. No sooner does he cry out against his assailants that guilt moves in. Guilt being a sense of shame, dishonor. Guilt comes in and beats him with a club. Just like, if you remember a couple weeks ago, the giant despair in Doubting Castle beat his victims with a club. Little Faith stumbles with each criminal. He's timid. Little Faith is eventually left beaten, wounded, 
His purse has been plundered. He's still intent on continuing his journey to his credit, but his progress will be much more difficult. He suffered great loss, but he did not lose it all, which is important. Christian explains that though the thieves were able to take his spending money, his purse, they were not able to ransack his jewels. Little Faith has lost his coin purse, but he has retained his treasure. The coin purse represents the sense of spiritual comfort, peace of mind, kind of our subjective apprehension of what we genuinely have in Christ. It's an awareness of God's grace at work in our lives, as in our, in our joy as we rest in the work of Christ for our Salvation. The coin purse holds spending money. It's our daily confidence, our assurance that we're going to reach the journey's end. And when little faith was robbed, it's kind of like when we give in to temptation and sin. He has lost his purse. He's lost his comfort, lost his peace of mind. And as he lost his spending money, he was overcome with grief. And that grief overwhelmed much of his confidence and hope. He was left with scarcely enough money to bring him to journey's end. But we should note that the thieves were able to snatch his coin purse, but they could not get his treasure. The jewels represent our heavenly reward, which are kept safe with Christ. This is Bunyan thinking about passages such as Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Those jewels, our treasure, Jesus spoke about. Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. The robbers also did not take little faith's certificate to gain him admittance to the celestial city. Our certificate represents the faith in Christ. The thieves missed the good thing, the text says, not by little faith's cunning or by his ability, but by the kind providence of God. As we move on in the text, the villains who robbed little faith are eventually run off in fear. Not by Christian or hopeful, not by little faith getting up and dusting himself off, but when they hear that another character named Great Grace is nearby. The text says that Great Grace is the king's champion. He's courageous. He's fit for battle. He's adept at wielding the sword. He represents a vigilant believer, a mature Christian, or perhaps even a faithful pastor, strong in the faith, seasoned in spiritual warfare, and yet sympathetic to the needs of fellow Christians like little faith. He's one whom others can turn to in times of trial and grief for godly counsel and encouragement. He knows the word of God. He's diligent in prayer. His, his strength is not found in himself. 
as his name implies, great grace. He does not boast in his own works, but he lives to serve and glorify his king. He's really someone who understands Ephesians 2. You're not saved by your works. But he also knows the duty of putting on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. After great grace, they run into a couple of other characters. One named Flatterer. Eventually another one named Atheist. You can read about those on your own. I'd like to move on to the next scene. Where Christian and Hopeful encounter the Enchanted Ground. Enchanted Ground. Enchanted is a word that I guess is used mostly by Disney these days. It's kind of a magical place. Might even say it's got a spell about it. You can read a little section describing it. I'm on page 158 of my book. It says, I then saw in my dream that they went till they came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy. If he came a stranger into it, if he wandered into it, you get a little sleepy. And their hopeful began to be very dull and heavy of sleep. And he said unto Christian, I do now begin to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold up mine eyes. Let us lie down here and take a nap. Naps are important in this book, if you'll think back. Christian says, by no means, lest sleeping we never awake more. Hopeful said, why, my brother? Sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we but take a nap. Christian says, do you not remember that one of the shepherds back on the delectable mountains bid us to beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping. Wherefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. Hopeful said, I, I acknowledge myself in fault, and, and, I had been, and had I been here alone, I had by sleeping run danger of death. He says, I, I see now the error, and if, if you hadn't have been here, Christian, I would have taken a nap and been in danger. My soul would have been in danger. I see it is true that the wise man says that two are better than one. He's quoting Ecclesiastes. By that company, I've received mercy. Christian says, now then, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good discourse. Saying, let's, let's keep each other awake. Let's keep talking. We need to encourage one another. Hopeful says, with all my heart. Christian, where shall we begin? Hopeful says, well, where God began with us. But do you begin, if you please? Christian then moves to sing a song. Songs are also important in this allegory. I won't sing it to you. I'll read it to you. (laughs) When saints do grow sleepy, let them come hither and hear how these two pilgrims talk together. Yea, let them learn of them in any wise, thus to keep open... Their drowsy, slumbering eyes. 
Saints' fellowship, if it be managed well, keeps them awake, and that in spite of hell. Since our two companions met back at Vanity Fair, Christian and Hopeful have been faced with many dangers together, and they're approaching the end of their journey. And they face another peril. Peril that is subtle, very subtle. It's hard to discern. I'm going to slow down here and think about the enchanted ground because it's where many of us will be tempted. This is a country where the air makes us drowsy and lethargic. The enchanted ground represents the dullness that we all can experience, brought about by spiritual complacency. Or perhaps even fatigue. When Christian and Hopeful enter the enchanted ground, Hopeful begins to get very dull, the text says. He suggests to Christian that they stop and take a nap. But Christian is adamant. He says, no. No, he fears that if we fall asleep, we may not ever wake again. But Hopeful's not convinced. He's persistent. I'm sleepy. Leave me alone. He questions Christian's resistance and he quotes scripture to him. Did you notice that? Ecclesiastes 5.12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. And the verse that he quotes is certainly true. Christian learned the value of rest back at House Beautiful, if you remember. But Christian also knows that this is not the time for sleep. He remembers the instructions of the shepherds. He recognizes where they were, the ground that they had heard about, the enchanted ground. The shepherds warned them, beware, do not sleep in this place. Sleep is indeed good, but there are many warnings in Scripture about the wrong kind of sleep. Psalm 13, 3, Consider and hear me, O my Lord, enlighten my eyes, wake me up lest I sleep the sleep of death. Or maybe Proverbs chapter 6. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a lion and want like an armed man. Paul even brings up sleep. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Christian has already seen the dangers of spiritual sleep. Remember, simple and sloth and presumption. Asleep, not far from the foot of the cross. Simple saw no need to study and understand. Sloth saw no need to do anything hard or anything costly. Presumption settled, where if he needed to, he could still peek over and see the cross. And he assumed that that would be enough. Christian himself fell asleep at the arbor on the way up the hill of difficulty. And by doing so, he lost his, his role, his assurance of salvation. And he had to go back, he had to backtrack, and he lamented his carelessness. It placed him in peril. He was so worked up over it. Bunyan is reminding us in this 
section on the enchanted ground of spiritual complacency. Not being watchful. But also of fatigue. See, it's clear when we're looking at the the hill error and Mount Caution and we see the the, the, the door with the darkness and the brimstone smell hitting us in the face. It's clear in that moment we need to be on guard. But the enchanted ground is the slow, almost mundane rhythm. Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Bible reading, prayer. When life is to some degree comfortable... Religion can become rote, simply routine. We can grow complacent, careless in our walk with God. We can settle in and grow too comfortable in our faith. Our worship loses its wonder. There's no more awe in our worship. A-W-E. Hearing the same old Passages, the same scripture read, singing the same old songs, hearing the same boring teacher. We can begin to think, I've heard this before, and so we don't listen so intently anymore. I can kind of tune out and start thinking about either what, what i got to do tomorrow at work, or, or maybe what, what I'm going to have for lunch today. We're worried about something else over here. We're not paying attention. We grow too familiar with the content and the forms of worship. We simply throw back the cup of the Lord's Supper without a second thought. Spiritual sleep can overtake us. We we may come week after week and we might say we're here to feed on the Word of God, but we fail to actually taste and see that the Lord is good. William Mason, again, a good commenter on Pilgrim's Progress, says that Christian, beware of sleeping on this enchanted ground. When all things go easy and smooth and well, we are prone to grow drowsy in soul. How many are the cause in the word of God against spiritual slumber? And yet how many professors through the enchanting air of this world are fallen into a deep sleep of simple formality? Saying, going through the motions. Be warned by them and cry to the Lord to keep you awake. Awake to righteousness and vigorous in the ways of the Lord. I think that entire churches and probably entire denominations can fall into spiritual lethargy. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow drift. With slight compromise after slight compromise. God's people can become drowsy, asleep, even near to the cross like simple sloth and presumption. We can dismiss and discard the teaching of difficult doctrine because we don't want to offend anybody. And we can grow more and more superficial, more and more shallow. We get comfortable in our routine. We stop doing anything that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. We, we can even pare down ministry so that the Christian life simply becomes 
an hour on Sunday morning, just showing up, checking the box. We grow complacent and languid. We're not, we're not sharing our faith with anybody. We're not engaging with anyone else. We're not having the good discourse, the good talk, the discipleship of encouragement. We're assuming that all is well. That I don't even need to encourage or admonish anyone, and I certainly don't need to be admonished. To quote something a little bit different, there's a song from the 70s by Keith Green. Green. It's called Asleep in the Light. And he says, Oh, can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark. But that the church can't just fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. I think Bunyan could amen that song. Spiritual complacency is dangerous, but it's not the only thing that lulls us to sleep. Spiritual fatigue can do this as well. Living as a Christian in this world can be can be hard. This world is full of sin. And even when we're doing our best and we're having a really good day, it can be exhausting. Rising day after day, fighting the same old battles against the same old sins, it can be very wearisome. It's easy to wonder sometimes, wouldn't it be nice if I just didn't have to fight anymore? Satan tempts us to give up the fight. It's usually not so brazen about it. It's more subtle. Just a little, little compromise here or there. It tries to allure us, to entice us away from what is true, especially when we are weak and weary. In part two of Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrims find two travelers asleep on the road through the enchanted ground. One is named Heedless. The other is named Too Bold, T-O-O, Too Bold. And they rushed into the enchanted ground with all the confidence in the world, but they failed to stay alert. They did not listen to the truth of God's word, and they grew weary in their crossing. In their boldness, in their zeal, they ran in with too much confidence. They weren't prepared for the long haul. There's a character named Great Heart, who is the pilgrim's guide in this section of part two. And he explains the demise of heedless and too bold. He says, this then is the mischief of it. He says, this is the danger. When heedless ones go on pilgrimage, it's 20 to 1, but they're served as most likely they're going to experience this, he says. For this enchanted ground is one of the last refuges that the enemy to the pilgrims has. Right before you approach heaven, the celestial city, this is one of the last dangers that the enemy has set up, the enchanted ground. It's placed almost at the end of the way. 
And so it stands against us with the most advantage. When we are most weary in our journey, that's when we face it. The enemy thinks that these fools will be so desirous to sit down. He knows when we're most weary at the end of the journey. This enchanted ground is placed so near to the land Beulah, so near to the end of their race as to give him the greatest effectiveness. It's at the end of our journey because spiritual fatigue is the danger that any can fall into when they've been on the way for a long time. We come out of the gate hard. We get saved. We have a lot of zeal. We're on guard. We're ready for the Lord. We'll do anything, but slowly imperceptibly, our zeal can wane. And we drift. We can fall asleep crossing the enchanted ground. And so the solution for making it across such a treacherous place is threefold in our text. Number one, we should never walk alone. It's one thing that Hopeful points out, right, when he realizes his error... He's grateful for his company. He quotes Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he will have no one to help him up. Had he been by himself, hopeful might have fallen asleep and never made it to the celestial city. By God's kindness, Christian walked with him. And prevented him from succumbing to the spiritual slumber. Number two, we must look to God's word. It's not enough to walk with a partner. You must have God's word. God's given us instruction in his word that we are to heed and to follow. He's given us the faithful shepherds from the delectable mountains. To teach us God's word. To exhort us to follow in the word of the king must remember God's word. Preach it continually to ourselves. Teach one another as we press through this enchanted ground that makes us so sleepy. Number three, we must engage in godly discourse. That's what Christian tells Hopeful. He says, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good discourse. Bunyan's highlighting the value of Christian Discipleship. The pilgrims sing together. They discuss together spiritual things that edify their souls. Discipleship, which is just really loving one another well, walking together, it involves helping, encouraging, letting others help us, letting others encourage us. It involves And intentionality, it involves an investment of time and effort. It involves rejoicing in the truth with one another. Sharing testimony of God's goodness with one another. Sometimes that's just simple, but the most valuable thing that we can give to someone who's struggling is to just tell them about how God has helped you with the same thing. You don't have to be a mountain of a theologian or a walking lexicon who knows their Bible backwards and forwards to simply tell the goodness of God in your own life. 
Discipleship is, is really a means of grace where God uses fellow saints to keep the gospel new and fresh and exciting. To keep God in our minds with a sense of awe and wonder. It's a simple means whereby mature believers are heartened on. They're encouraged. They continue cherishing, walking in the faith. We'll see more of this discipleship in action next week. Christian will question hopeful. He, he asks more specific questions. He asks about his testimony. And he offers encouragement and instruction. God is gracious. He's gracious to insist that we would walk together on our road to the celestial city. In our moments of weakness and foolishness, we might think, man, if I just if God would just give me the instruction manual and just leave me alone to it, I'll be okay. Sometimes we can be tempted to think that the church is more of a burden to our journey than an actual boon, blessing. But as we'll see next week, we need each other. If we're going to make it to the celestial city, we need God's word. We need testimonies of God's goodness in our lives. We need exhortation. We need goodly discourse on the truth to keep us from growing dull and falling asleep in the way on our way to the celestial city. That's where we'll stop for today. Next week, Lord willing, we will land the plane. Well, I don't want to spoil it. But the celestial city is coming up. I hope they make it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. For the means of grace whereby the church and the saints filled with the same spirit speak the truth that encourages us along the way. We can be reminded of, by testimonies of your goodness seen in the lives of others, reminded of the truth found in your word, reminded that we can't give up, we can't fall asleep, we can't grow complacent. We can't be like Turnaway who decided to let his lust pull him back. We must continue to be faithful. We must plod. We must be watchful. We must be vigilant. Lord, help us to be these things. Help us to encourage one another and also be encouraged ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.